Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Sally, you have about three pages in the back of the book listing the interviews you did for this book. Well over 100 people. Who were three people you knew you had to interview to write this biography? Yeah, okay, that's an easy one. (laughs) And I didn't know it right away, but as I began interviewing people, I began to learn who those people were. The first person I interviewed, and probably one of the most important, was Rosemary Darbin. That was Althea's best friend uh, during her tennis playing days with the ATA, the black tennis community. Uh, She was from New Jersey. She too played there, uh, and they became really good friends. And Althea met her husband because that was her brother. Rosemary's brother became her first husband. Uh, The second person was Angela Buxton. That was a white woman, uh, British, who became kind of her closest tennis friend in the white world. Uh, She had endured a lot of discrimination as a Jewish person, and they became incredibly bonded and very close, really, until Althea's death. Um, The third person, let me think about that for a second. There was a fellow named Bob Ryland who has since passed on. Um, He was a black tennis player and very prominent. And he knew Althea. He just had a very uh, unique perspective on both her life in Harlem and also in later years uh, in the white tennis world. Um, I interviewed him a couple of times and I just I felt like I learned a lot from him. So probably those three. Will you share how you gained access to Althea Gibson's papers? Yeah, Um, by that, I think you mean her personal papers, right? Personal I do. letters. Yes. I, um, I got to know Althea's cousin, Don Felder. He's a second cousin um, on her mother's side, a Washington family member. And as I began to interview different people, I got closer to him and also a woman who had ended up with Althea's papers. Long story, probably not worth going into, but there had been a woman who was a friend of Althea's, uh, maybe not the best person Mm -hmm. in the world, but she slowly gathered Althea's things over her declining years. She lost a lot of them, put a lot of them in a um, storage unit on the New Jersey Turnpike in Newark. And they kind of sat there forever till I showed up talking to the daughter of that person and the cousin, Don Felder, and one day the three of us headed out there, broke the padlock, got in, not broke, sorry, unlocked the padlock because they had the keys, and got in, and it was just incredible for someone, a reporter, an author like me. There were boxes and boxes that had not been opened for years. There were golf clubs, there were tennis rackets, hair curlers, you name it. Um, And so that was when I began to really get to the heart of Althea's sort of personal stuff, our love letters, a lot of great stuff for an author. What was your goal, Sally, when you first sat down to write this biography of Althea Gibson? Well, as you know, when you first sit down, you don't really know what you're doing. You don't really know what your story is. You know what the topic is, but you don't know where it's going to take you. And that was certainly true with Althea. You know, I spent about four years on this. I knew very little. In fact, I barely knew who she was when I started. Um, I feel like I really came to understand her with each consecutive year. And my goal, of course, was to tell the story of a championship athlete who broke the color barrier, not just in one sport, but two, which many people don't know. She also broke the color barrier in golf. And to tell that story, because many people to this day don't know who Althea was and don't know that she was the first black woman to be the number one tennis player um, in the world. And when you say you didn't know her you didn't mean you mean you didn't know her personally. You knew of her. <laughs> I didn't. You didn't. I, How did you come to this subject? Yeah. 
I've always, I always, every time someone asks that question, I always wish I had a better answer, a more original answer, but I'm, unfortunately, I'm just going to give you the truth. And the truth is, uh, I was looking for another book topic. I had written a biography of Barack Obama's father. I was looking around and my boyfriend said, well, why don't you write something about Althea Gibson? Nothing's really been written on her. I said, who the hell is Althea Gibson? I didn't know who she was. You know, lucky for me, um, there really had not been a great deal written about her. She had written her own autobiography. There were a couple of books, uh, one authorized biography of her uh, and a couple of books in which she was kind of half of the story. So there was a lot of uncovered ground as a book writer. It was just a really great topic to walk into. This is Full Bio. We are discussing the book Althea, The Life of Tennis Champion Althea Gibson. My guest is author Sally Jacobs. Most people associate Althea Gibson with Harlem, but she was born to a sharecropping family in South Carolina on August 25th, 1927. And you found the sales record for Gibson's great-great-grandmother named Tiller. She was sold for $378 to Benjamin Reese Gibson. Um, yeah, you know, we started in South Carolina, Clarendon County. I had an excellent research assistant who knows the records. And um, we just started going through a lot of documents, you know, unfolding old envelopes, getting the clerks to help us. And we did find that bill of sale, um, traced Tiller to uh, her um, son, who was kind of an amazing person, um, who was a very intelligent guy. He was uh, had not had an education, but really believed in education. January Gibson was his name, uh, a really standout guy. And he broke a lot of ground in Clarendon County for other folks uh, and helped people get education at a time when that was very, very rare. But that was that was her background. On the other side, the maternal side of the family, Althea Gibson's grandfather, Charlie Washington, you describe him as the man. He had a little bit of status. How did he rise to prominence? You know, Charlie was um, a merchant. He ran a store. It was one of three stores in the tiny, tiny town of Silver, South Carolina. He rose because he was smart. <laughs> a lot of the goods that he sold were secondhand. I mentioned the cousin Don Felder. His mother worked in the store, and she would describe for me when the train would come into town with the boxes of goods, the secondhand clothes they would lay out, um, the fresh fish they would bring down. Um, and it was a really very popular store. It had a little cafe in it. Charlie really was the man. Um, he was a minister, uh, didn't have his own church, but. He really was the kind of go-to guy there. So that was kind of part of her background in this small town. There's an interesting fact about Charlie Washington that he is tied to the landmark Brown versus Board of Education school desegregation case. How so? And why was this a detail you wanted to include in this biography of Althea Gibson? Well, it was relevant to me. It was a young man um, who was teaching in the school system for a while who was linked to the Brown versus Board of Education case. Um, it was such a critical case that being able to link Althea to it, although she never knew this fellow um, whose name I'm spacing on right now, um, I, I just wanted to make that, to put that as a perspective for where she was, how this tiny town in a way played a really significant role. There were a number of people, there was a petition signed to get the local school system to be part of the case that ultimately turned into Brown. There were a couple of Gibsons. I could never make the link uh, directly to Althea. I did find one cousin. I had hoped to find a more direct link, um, but clearly the community and that one connected cousin, not a first cousin, um, you know, 
know, really tied her to a, a major civil rights um, landmark case. So that was my aim in mentioning it. The two family lines come together in the 20s when Annie Bell Washington and Daniel Gibson marry. Althea's born, the first of five children. What was life like for the Gibsons before they moved to New York City? Well, in a word, as you can imagine, in the South, uh, in the late 20s and early 30s, it was as hard as possible. Sharecropping was in many ways a thinly veiled form of slavery. You only could make a part of the money you actually earned. You had to pay a lot of it to the white man. Um, I think in one year, uh, her dad made uh, $10. You know, it clearly was not going to be a viable uh, living, viable place to make a living. There had been a lot of bad weather, a lot of rain. It just, it was, it was not... Great. As everybody knows, uh, the Great Migration was coming. It was in the offing uh, after the Depression. So in the early 1930s, the writing was on the wall. Um, one of Annie's sisters, Sally, comes down to Silver for a funeral. And she sees the situation, sees little Althea, and says, I'll take her back with me to New York. You know, she was taking one of, you know, she was only one of, I think, two children at the time who had been born. But it was taking a little bit of the burden off the parents. And within a year, uh, Annie goes up and then her father comes up to uh, to Harlem. They gradually migrate up there by the early 30s. And there's a story about... It's a little bit of a harbinger for how things are going to go for Daniel Gibson. He gets ripped off when he arrives in New York. Exactly, right. There's a fellow there, uh, a fellow on the train, a conductor, who says that he's going to tell him about Harlem, tell him how to get up there. They take the train up there. He charges him $5. In fact, the price of the train ride is about five cents. And they get off the train and the conductor says to him, welcome to Harlem. And, you know, he's just gotten ripped off. The rest is, is coming at him fast. Yeah, there are very, two very different kinds of Harlem. And you get into this in the book. There's the Harlem of the New Negro, of Zora Neale Hurston and Langston Hughes. And then there's the Harlem of working folks trying to get by, which is more of the Gibson family story. For the average working family at this time, early 30s, mid-30s in Harlem, what were the issues? Well, the issues were trying to make a living and stay alive, basically. You know, there was, as you say, this very, uh, the Harlem, a lot of people think of as a, the kind of a vibrant dance, dancing, beautiful, black people flourishing, endless nightclubs, that kind of a thing. But the truth was, as many social workers knew, but, you know, had trouble getting attention to, was that many, many people were struggling to get food on the table. It was hard to get work. Many people were boxed into Harlem. Wages were low. I found that Althea's own block uh, was known as the lung block because of the high rate of lung disease, um, all different kinds of diseases, but that she survived on the lung block, which of course I doubt she even knew, probably wasn't even made public till years later, was really a reflection of how hard life was then. There were five of them, children, two parents. They lived in, I think it was a four bedroom apartment at one point. Her father worked as a garage mechanic. Um, And her mom stayed home and cooked and took care of the children. And that was up on 143rd Street? 143rd. You got it. Between 7th and um, Lenox. We're discussing the book Althea, The Life of Tennis Champion Althea Gibson. My guest is Sally Jacobs. It's our choice for full bio. So Althea Gibson was, as they used to say in the day, a kid who was running in the streets. How did she entertain herself pre-tennis? We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, Althea, better known as Big Al in those days, as her father nicknamed her, nicknamed her, uh, had a lot of fun. 
<laughs> she broke the rules. She did what she wanted. She was a pickpocket. She dropped out of school after junior high. Um, she loved to sing. She went to the famous Apollo Theater and would sing with other people. She competed. Um, she was out on the streets a lot, a lot. She was a really tough girl. And frankly, she looked the part, which would come to matter in subsequent years. She had very short hair. She wore blue jeans, which was not very common. And she wore t-shirts, which, you know, for a girl of that era was very unusual. Uh, one of the things that kind of defined her days, her era, her days then was boxing. Women's boxing was a quite uh, flourishing sport. Women can make money. Uh, and her dad, who needed money, as did the whole family, decided that his tough Big Al was going to learn how to box. So he took her up onto the roof of their tenement and started to box with her. And he knocked her down and he knocked her down again. Now, this went on for a while. Althea was still growing. She would grow to be five, ten and a half. And slowly she began to be able to knock him down. Uh, the two of them would go up there and fight and fight. Her brother would be watching. He would later tell the stories of this, which is why we know some detail. But pretty soon Althea could knock her dad out. Now, that was a real milestone for her, but it didn't really uh, solve what was her larger problem, which was that her dad would beat her up. Uh, he would hit her. He had a kind of a whip uh, rope sometimes he hit her with. We know about this because Althea wrote about it in her own autobiography. I always wanted to be somebody. Uh, and she describes in some detail the fear she had of her father, um, who frankly loved her very much. Uh, but I think he was a deeply frustrated man in Harlem. And this was one of the ways he vented that. Uh, long story short, Althea tried to stop him. She would go to the police department. She would, as she wrote, pull her blouse off her shoulder and show the police the welts and the bruises on her back. And what did they do? They called up Mr. Gibson and they go, Daniel, come on down here and get your girl. And back she would go to the house. She went to the SPCA, the Children's Welfare Organization, uh, and they did help her. Uh, they did call him initially, but in time they gave her a room and gave her support, which really was a, a grace period for her. But most important, the way Althea tried to cope with that violence and the pain of her childhood was she would ride the train at night, the train that would go up and down the length of Manhattan. As she describes it in her autobiography, it starts when she's age 12 that she does this. All through the night, a 12-year-old girl riding the train by herself. I mention it to you only because to me, this was really a critical developmental point for her. As she describes it, as she's on the train, she's thinking, I'm by myself. I am the only person who is going to take care of me. And in a way, that really came to be true throughout her life. Althea was on her own a great deal, and she became a quite defended person, and that would color much about her tennis career. Althea Gibson was an all-around athlete, boxing, basketball, and you write in your book, when 10-year-old Althea Gibson walked out of her building one morning in 1937 to find 143rd Street shut off with wooden barricades and a paddle tennis court awaiting her, she was beside herself. Sally, what was going on that day on 143rd Street? 
Yeah, it was a Sunday, uh, and something called the PAL, which stood for the Police Athletic League, had set that court up. And the reason they did was because it was so darn dangerous in Harlem. Um, there was very little playgrounds to speak of, not many places a kid could go. There were statistics about the number of children who were hit by cars playing in the street, literally, some of them killed. It was a very dangerous place. So the Police Athletic League started putting up these uh, paddle tennis courts, and bingo, one of them is right on Althea's block. So Althea strides out there in her inimitable way and starts to play and she plays hard and she wins and she wins the next block and the next block. She starts to play in um, larger um, kind of community paddle tennis games and she starts to win there also. This is a great sport for her. How long after that day did it become clear that she had a gift for racket sports? Well, it certainly became clear there. Um, and as you know from the book, a band leader named Buddy Walker comes along um, in 1941 and says, wow, that girl can play. He takes her to a tennis court. He has a couple of his friends you know, play against her and confirms that this girl, this young woman, is very, very good. So he takes her over to 149th Street to something called the Cosmopolitan Club. That was the black tennis club where all the creme de la creme of the Harlem Society played tennis. When Althea Gibson won Wimbledon, Buddy Walker was one of the first people she thanked in a press conference in New York City. Let's listen. I'd like to thank, first of all, Buddy Walker for being the first person to hand me a tennis racket, for being the first person to reach over a handful of youngsters playing paddle tennis in the 143rd Street and saying to me, I think you can make a good tennis player. How did Althea Gibson fit in at the Cosmopolitan Club? Uh, not is the first word that comes to mind. She really didn't fit in in those early uh, months. It was very tough. Um, they looked at her and thought, who the hell is this? You know, I've told you what she looked like, blue jeans, short hair. This was not what the folks at the Cosmopolitan Club wanted. They would wear uh, fine dresses, tailored white outfits. You know, it was a very kind of well-dressed, showy community. And to look at Althea, it was like, you know, the 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 waif had walked in off the street. But then they saw her play and watched how she hit and saw her incredible athleticism, and that was that. You know, Althea would never really get along well with uh, that kind of community. It was a struggle for her. She was who she was, but they knew sheer talent when they saw it, and the compromise was made. We're discussing the book Althea, The Life of Tennis Champion Althea Gibson. My guest is Sally Jacobs. It's our choice for full bio. Let's talk about the American Tennis Association, the ATA. You spent some good time getting into the history of black tennis. What is the ATA? When was it founded? What was its goal? Right. The ATA is the American Tennis Association, founded in Druid Hill, Maryland, Baltimore, uh, per se, in particular, uh, in 1914. And it was, as with many sports, the black communities. Um, step to create a place they could play the sport and not have to compete or, uh, you know, struggle to get on a court. It was their community, uh, and it became kind of the go-to place for black tennis. Bertram Baker was once described as the boss of Black Brooklyn. He was a big deal with the ATA. How would you describe his relationship with Althea Gibson? 
Yeah. Althea's relationship with the ATA and Bertram in particular was a, a complex one. Mm -hmm. They had chosen her. Uh, she was going to be the one they backed to break into white tennis. So they really wanted her on their team. Um, they wanted her to focus on tennis, make that number one. Althea had two doctors who sponsored her, uh, who really... Um, taught her a lot about tennis. They were both ATA members mm -hmm. also, but they really cared about Athea, the whole person. They wanted her to get an education because someday they knew she wouldn't be able to play tennis and they wanted her to be educated, to have a job, that kind of thing. So it became a bit of a struggle about Althea. Was she going to be kind of sacrificed to tennis or was she going to be the well-rounded person? And I think she struggled with that herself. It would get more complex when she started to play white tennis. Um, but when she started playing black tennis, she was the front runner. The community really rallied behind her, raised money for her, got her tickets to places. In the beginning, it was they were right behind her. What was it about Althea Gibson and the way she played tennis that she became the chosen one, that the ATA thought this could be the person who puts black tennis on the map and possibly integrates yeah. all of tennis? Well... Althea played in a way that not many women played at the time. Uh, she was aggressive, she was strong, and she rushed the net. Um, and she also was very powerful. There was another woman who she saw who really kind of modeled tennis for her, and her name was um, Alice Marble. She was one of the greatest tennis players of the time. She was the number one woman player in 1939, uh, and she took a fancy to Althea and vice versa. Althea saw her play in 1944 at an exhibition match at the Cosmopolitan Club. You know, it's very unusual to have a white woman, there was two white women actually, play tennis there, and Althea was mesmerized. She about it in her autobiography and she says that's how I want to play because Marble was also very aggressive unlike most women she wore shorts if you can imagine such a <laughs> oh such my a thing. yeah and Althea wore shorts shocking people um, but that was the style of game they played just very aggressive it was the beginning of kind of a new era in women's tennis at this time in her game what was Althea Gibson's weakness well, early in her game, she was very erratic. Um, she could play a very steady game, but then she'd get rattled if someone, you know, took a few points off of her and she'd start to miss shots, not do so well. Her backhand was not so great. Uh, and the other thing that just, you know, tortured her for a long time was her footing. She often um, had foot faults. Some games she would have 20 foot faults, not games, sorry, in a tournament, she would have up to 20 foot faults. And that would rattle her even more. So, you know, it really was nerve in a way that, that undermined her game in the early years. What about her appearance? As you said, she wore shorts. She wore T-shirts. In reading the book, the way that people described her often as mannish, I was wondering, it, was this, you know, coded language for, is Althea Gibson queer? Yes, is <laughs> the short answer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there were many other women like her, but Althea, you know, she didn't hesitate to be who she was. Uh, God bless her. Um, she dressed the way she did. She played the aggressive game. People didn't really talk about it too much. Um, but, you know, in my reporting, uh, Bob Ryland was one of the people that told me he went to find her at a tournament. He knocks on the dormitory uh, door and someone yells to come in. And there she is in bed with a woman. Um, you know, there are a number of incidents like that. 
Myself, uh, I feel that Althea was bisexual. She did mm -hmm. marry twice, once for love, once for convenience, but she had a lot of close female friends. A number of the young women um, at Florida, uh, FAMU, Florida Agricultural Mechanics uh, University, as it's now called, where she attended, tell me about her uh, pursuing women, uh, kind of coming on to them. But, you know, at the time, nobody really talked about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, these were sort of, you know, small stories that I heard from people in later years. Throughout Althea Gibson's career, you describe a series of adopted mothers and fathers, sort of stand-ins. One was example, one example was Rhoda Smith. Who was Rhoda Smith and how did she help scaffold Althea Gibson? Rhoda Smith was a prominent uh, ATA member in Harlem uh, and also kind of a social figure, a mega member of the Cosmopolitan Club. And she kind of adopted Althea at the time. Um, Althea's parents, as you can imagine, never cottoned to tennis. They didn't know tennis. Uh, I don't think they saw her play until 1956 when she wins her first Grand Slam, you know, 20, what, sorry, 15 years after she starts playing. So um, Rhoda kind of took her under her wing. She would play with her. And there were just a couple stories in the newspaper where Althea, who, of course, was the stronger player, even as a young person, you know, would, would try to help Rhoda play better. And she'd say, oh, I'm so sorry I hit the ball so hard. I'm so mm -hmm. sorry. But Althea, who never would apologize, was just trying so hard to help support Rhoda, who helped her. Um, Althea would stay at her house sometimes. She, uh, Rhoda would go and buy her underclothes, get her a warm coat, you know, really a, a step-in mom. And also she would accompany her as, she, as Althea started to play on the ATA tournament as her chaperone in many cases. Another big supporter, especially financially, was the boxer Sugar Ray Robinson. How did Sugar Ray Robinson take an interest and why did he take an interest in Althea Gibson? Well, they have quite a first meeting. They're both in the bowling alley. Sugar Ray loved to bowl. And Althea, and Althea, who also loved to bowl, and her girlfriends, gal pals, are bowling. And they say, oh, there's Sugar Ray. And what does Althea do? She goes up to him and she says, let's play. Let's do a bowling match. I think I can beat you. Okay. So, you know, he's kind of taken with that, and he comes to be very fond of her. He finds that she loves music. She plays the saxophone. She loves to sing. And it's he who puts up, I think it's $125 for her saxophone, a used saxophone, which is bought in Harlem, and she keeps with her for the rest of her life. He and his wife, again, kind of take her on. Uh, she travels with them. They go to one of his training sites. She's allowed to drive his car, even though she doesn't have a license. You know, it was that kind of relationship. And she always looked up to him. When she goes um, to Wimbledon uh, for the first time in 1951, he's there in a boxing match. And it's he who, um, when he arrives, she's there to meet him. And the press goes crazy. He just was kind of a, a shining star in her life uh, as a young woman. I think she really looked up to both of them. Two men who took up the cause of Althea, you call them the doctors, Dr. Hubert Eaton and Dr. Robert Johnson. Dr. Johnson became known as the godfather of black tennis. Dr. Eaton went on to have a career as a civil rights leader. What did they see in Althea, this high school dropout? Right. 
Well, they both had been watching her a little bit. You know, they were regulars at every single ATA tournament, and Althea was starting to play in quite a few of them in the early 40s. Um, Eaton actually says to one of the black newspapers that as he would watch her, he really didn't know if she was a girl or a boy. She was so masculine looking that he kind of moved on. He just didn't quite get it. But as time went on and he realizes she's winning tournaments, he starts to pay more attention. He realizes she's a woman, girl. They come uh, to a tournament in 1946. The two of them are sitting in the stands. This is an ATA tournament uh, at Wilberforce. And they're watching her. Uh, she's not playing her best. She's playing against a great player, Romania Peters. And she's getting, you know, she's falling into her usual habit of that day when she's getting flustered. And she misses a couple shots. She gets teed off. And she rams the ball off the court out of the, you know, playing area. You know, you don't do that in tennis. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But she does. Uh, anyway, she loses the match, but they are so impressed by how she plays, by her form, by her force, that they have decided as they're watching her, they are going to take her on as not just a student, but as a young uh, person, they're going to help get through school. She was a dropout at the time. Most ATA people did not know that because if they had, they probably wouldn't have taken her on. Mm-hmm. But they go to her that day. She stands, she's sitting the bottom of a, you know, the stairs, a lot of ATA people walk by, just so annoyed with her for losing. They barely even look at her. She's crying. Tears are going down her face. And I think it's Eaton that goes up to her and he says, I'd like to help you get to the U.S. National Tournament. She's like, what? Are you kidding? Well, he means it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's exactly what those two doctors do. Um, uh Johnson lives in Lynchburg, Virginia. Eaton is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Eaton takes her on for, she lives with him during the school year. Then she goes to Johnson during the summers. Eaton trains her. Each of those doctors has a tennis court in their backyard, which was beyond unusual, as you probably can imagine. Um, But they were prominent. They had a little bit of money. And this was the field, the the sport that they were going to help integrate. So they take her on. Um, They take her to various tournaments, mostly during the summer in the South with Johnson. He had a a beautiful car that he would drive around with four and five players in the car, and they would go from one tournament to the next. Of course, they weren't allowed to sleep in any hotels, eat in any restaurants. So life really happened in that car. Here's Althea Gibson thanking the doctors shortly after one of her big wins at Wimbledon. I'd like also to thank the two people who have done, I believe, the most for me in my tennis career. And I'm speaking of one who's present here today, Dr. R.W. Johnson. It was through Dr. Johnson's unselfish contributions which made it possible for me to travel around the USA at that particular time to get the needed experience that I so needed to attain this victory. And Dr. H.A. Eaton, who is not present here today, in whose home I received love, encouragement, and a great deal more while attending, or shall I say, finishing high school when at the time I did not care to finish. He has done 
a great deal for me. And for that, I thank Dr. Eaton and Dr. Johnson. Sally, you note Dr. Eaton realized that Althea was, as you put it, at the convergence of his two great passions, civil rights and tennis. What were his hopes for black tennis at this time? Well, the color barrier had begun to shake a little bit at this point. Uh, football had been integrated, um, and I think tennis was really the next sport that people, the black community, hoped to break into. Um, there had been a lot of talks between the ATA and the USLTA, as it was called at the time, the United States Lawn Tennis Association. Today it's the USTA, of course. Uh, and they weren't really getting very far. The USLTA kept putting them off. They would come to them and say, look, Althea is so great. Let her play. And they'd say, well, she's got to play in a few other tournaments. We, we really can't let her do that. She's got to show her stuff. So the task before Eaton, Johnson, and the others uh, was to get her wins at some of these other tournaments, more local tournaments, not the big uh, Grand Slams. And that's exactly what they did. You described their offer to mentor her as a bit of a leap of faith on their part initially. Why would that be the case if, if she were this talented? Well, first, because she was a woman. You know, that was surprising to everybody, I think. Most people at the time would have thought it would have been a man uh, that they would have taken to the gates of the USLTA. But Althea was so good at what she did. Women's tennis was kind of coming into its own. There had been a real golden period of women's tennis the past decade. Um, and I think really kind of the chemistry of who she was, not that she was an easy person because she wasn't altogether, but I think the chemistry was right between her and the doctors. And this was the gamble they decided decided to, to take. My guest is Sally Jacobs. The name of her book is Althea, The Life of Tennis Champion Althea Gibson. It's our choice for full bio. When they began to work with her on her game, how did she respond to coaching? Well, <laughs> Althea struggled with that, of course, because, you know, for her, it was hard to have someone tell her what to do. Uh, Eaton would write in his own book about how, you know, when she wasn't playing so well, she would get very, very quiet. Sometimes she would go inside and he worried about that. But he began to realize also that this was her determination to be great. And that when she wasn't being great, when she wasn't playing well, she really got low. And this was something that he had to work with and did. Uh, and he really helped her overcome some of her anxiety uh, and some of the, the poor playing that she would resort to when she became anxious. What about the coaching off the court, the the right. manners around tennis, yeah. the way one behaves, the way one right. presents oneself? Right. So both doctors uh, specialized in that. Uh, Eaton uh, had Althea at the family dinner table, of course, and would always be coaching her. His wife was a beautiful uh, woman, very socially engaged, and she would help Althea with her clothing, try to get her to dress a little better, got her to go to the prom, which was a big leap. But it was really Dr. Johnson, um, Dr. J, as they called him, who, who did the nitty gritty. He would have a whole bunch of students uh, at his house, probably oh, four or five, living in the house for the summer and every meal they would sit around the table and he would show them how to use the right spoon the right fork you absolutely you must fold you know cross your legs the men must pull out the chair for the women and don't forget that napkin must go in your lap you know <laughs> that kind of a thing some some things that Althea had never heard of before perhaps and any of them had never heard of but boy did they learn a lot there uh, and one of his uh, major 
lessons for them was if the ball goes out or you think the referee has a bad call, you keep your mouth shut. You don't say, oh, no, no, that was in. You just keep right on going and stay quiet. And that's what they did. All that stuff around the dinner table, that's what the old folks used to call home training. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Is that child have any home training? Uh <laughs> The doctors wanted her to complete her education and en- enroll in college. They, they wanted her to complete high school. That was one of the stipulations for them working with her. Um, why did they want her to go to college rather than get her out there on the circuit ASAP while she's young and strong? Right. Well, as I mentioned, they were concerned with the whole person here. They didn't want to just have a winner, you know, to make the money, to make the ATA happy, to to serve the black community altogether. They wanted Althea to be a full person with an education so that when the day came that she couldn't play tennis, which, of course, you know, wasn't that far off, you know, professional sports. This was amateur tennis, of course. But, you know, you get to a point where you really can't compete anymore. And they wanted her to be able to get a job to make some money. You could not make any money in tennis in the amateur era. It was not until 1968, the open era, you could begin to make prize money. So they really were thinking of the whole person in a way that the ATA, they wanted to pull her out of college this month, take her here that month, which became a real struggle between the two doctors and the larger leadership of the ATA. Althea Gibson goes to Florida Agricultural and Mechanical College. She was called the Gib in college. Uh, And she stuck out as compared to her peers, but not just because of her talent. What made her an unusual student at FAMC? Yeah. Um, Althea got special treatment. Um, in many, many ways. And one of them is in the pool hall. (laughs) Uh, Althea would go over to the men's dorm. No girl would ever do that. And she would just sashay in there, go down to the basement and start shooting pool, at which she was very good. And not only did she shoot pool, she won pool. I found several guys who just, you know, told me the stories of their astonishment when Althea would not only show up, but beat them at their own game. Uh, When she would go into the dining hall, you know, for better or worse, she could go to the head of the line, and she often did. Um, you know, some people resented it, sure. You know, for, for Althea, it also was a little bit complicated because she did have to leave campus. She often had to go play tournaments in the middle of a week, say, uh, and that made school hard for her. It also kind of kept, kept her out of the loop. So she would come back, as one of the students was saying, and she'd say, okay, fill me in. What's going on? Who's doing what? So I think life wasn't totally easy for her, although she was sort of a star there, you know, it was a little complicated. Althea Gibson begins her list of firsts. In 1949, she became the first black woman to participate in the Indoor Eastern Championships. What issues did she face as a first? Well... You know, as you can imagine, being the first black woman, she faced, um, you know, a lot of racism. Uh, a lot of people would call names. Some places, you know, she wasn't allowed to use the bathroom, certainly couldn't use a restaurant. You know, there's a lot of race tinged into that. I think there were some black men who resented her uh, coming in and becoming a first. Um, so, again, it was complicated. When she began to compete, what was her edge? Well, it was kind of the style that we talked about a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. 
which was that Althea was incredibly aggressive in a way that very few women were. She would rush the net almost to a fault. You know, her game really needed to develop a little bit. Uh, she had a lot of foot faults, which were a problem. Um, but her success was that she was such an aggressive player. Um, she was. She had an incredibly strong overhand. Um, yeah, she was daunting to play against. In the 1940s, who were other African-American tennis players in her peer group? Yeah, one of the main people was Reginald Weir, uh, who was a doctor, who was right before Althea. He had played in the indoors the year before uh, a number of tournaments. He was a bit of an anomaly because he was allowed to play in a number of white tournaments, not Grand Slams yet, but he was well-liked. He was a doctor, so the white community sort of allowed him in, including USLTA was aware of this. So he kind of in some ways led the way for her. He would probably be one of the main names. Um, there were the Peters sisters uh, who were very talented tennis players. They were ones that Althea needed to uh, defeat in order to uh, move ahead, which she ultimately did. Mm -hmm. They had beaten her quite a number of times early on. You point out that Althea Gibson had to overcome race, gender, and class. We've talked a little bit about each. I would love for you to give me, there's so many examples in the book, just for our listeners, one example in her career at this point, in this 1940s to 1950s range, where she had to deal with an issue of race, an issue of gender, and an issue of class. Well, the race one is easy. Um, one of the things that happened, Althea, when she was playing with Dr. Johnson and the, you know, the carload I described of folks traveling around the South, um, they would go to different tournaments. They would need to leave the towns they were in often by the time darkness fell because they were what were known as sundown towns. This happened once in Orangeburg, South Carolina in 1948, I believe it is. Yeah. And um, Dr. J is there with, I think it's two carloads, probably six uh, students, six players. They have all won their tournaments, uh, including Althea. And they're just, they're over the top. They're celebrating, they're partying, they all have their trophies. Uh, so much so that they have committed a cardinal sin, which is they have not filled up the gas tank. Okay, small detail, right? You just go fill it up. Well, not if you're black and not if you're in the South, because they won't fill you up in the South because you're supposed to be gone. So Dr. Johnson realizes this, and they are heading the two cars they have with all the players in them to the gas station, nervous, uh, and as one might imagine, as they pull up in the darkness, the owner comes barreling out of the front door with a gun in his hands, puts it at Althea's head, she's sitting in the passenger seat, and he says, N-word, get the hell out of here. <laughs> so mm. they have no gas. What are they going to do? They pull over to the side of the road, playing, I think it's around 11 o'clock now, uh, at night, they pull over and they wait, thinking they're going to have to wait till sunrise to get out the gas and get out. Fortunately, uh, some young people come along that know the gas, uh, some black young people that happen to know the gas attendant. They explain the situation, the tennis, and they're allowed to get some gas and leave. But you can imagine the lesson that Dr. Johnson learned that night, which was he would never again forget to fill up the gas tank. When was a time when her gender really was an obstacle. Well, Athea's gender is a complicated story uh, because she did appear so male. Mm -hmm. um, I was trying to think of a case where it was a barrier to her. You know, it was a barrier in so many cases in any tennis tournament. Um, I think I'm going to tell you the brief story about her gender and what it stems from, which mm -hmm. 
is a complicated story, but uh, Althea had a problem on her birth certificate. When she was born uh, in 1927, on her birth certificate, she was born in a family home. The birth certificate that was subsequently filled out described her as a male. And it gave her the name, not of Althea, but of Alger, A-L-G-E-R. And it gave her father, not the name of Daniel, which he was, but he was called Duas, D-U-A-S. These errors go unnoticed for decades um, until Althea in 1954 decides to apply to the U.S. Army, the Women's Army. I could not get the full story, but from the pieces I could get, which were several documents from the Women's Army to Althea, she apparently had a medical exam in 1954 and they were not happy with it. Now, was it a problem with her gender? Something was wrong because shortly after she has that medical exam, her father goes to the courthouse in South Carolina in Clarendon County and has her gender changed. It gets changed to female. Her name is corrected. His name is corrected. Now, how did that happen? What did it mean? I don't have the final answer for that. I do know that the Women's Army was not happy with it, and they write her a letter in 1955 and say, you need to come back. You need to have some more medical tests, some more exams. I think there was a problem there, um, and Althea decided not to to go to confront it. She stopped applying. She dropped her application. End of story. So I never really knew mm. <laughs> what came that. But needless, needless to say, gender was a complicated factor in her life, and that in itself, right there, was one of the most complicated chapters of it. And in terms of class, which is something people don't like to talk about. Yeah. You know, class was an issue that hounded Althea throughout her life, um, even even when she post-tennis years. You know, she struggled a lot. Um, when Althea, sort of a poignant story that always haunts me about Althea, when she, this is kind of a race thing, but it's partly class, when she wins Wimbledon, um, she does the ballroom, the classic ballroom dance with a white man named Lou Hode, who was number one tennis player also, of course. Um, and she moves on. She travels away that night. But the next morning, uh, Lou Hode and his wife get a, ba a, a bag of hate mail raging at him for dancing uh, with a black woman, raging against Althea, with having a prominent position that she did. What are you doing dancing with that end person? You know, part of this was also class. This was Wimbledon. This was, you know, the elegant uh, society event, one of them in London society. And there was just a lot of rage against her for breaking these barriers. Um, I don't think she ever knew about all those letters, but certainly Hode and his wife did, and they were shocked and horrified. I want to talk a little bit about, before we talk about Forest Hills and Wimbledon, I want to talk about the press a little bit, the press and Althea Gibson. When did the press first pick up on her, that she would be a good news story? Oh, I think from day one, uh, as soon as Althea starts playing in the ATA, um, the black press starts following her. You know, she's the champion. She's the one who's going to go break down that door to the USLTA. So they're on it immediately. Now, in some ways, they too had a complicated relationship with Althea. She did not love talking to the press. She had a number of, um, you know, really bad exchanges with them, fights mm -hmm. over different incidents. But in the beginning, the black press was behind her. There were a number of black papers, um, Chicago, Amsterdam News, 
fortunately, you can have access to all of them. So it was really easy to sort of see how the black community viewed her. Many, many editorials, they were with her all together. Um, but that didn't last. Uh, by 1953, when she's at uh, college, she graduates in 53, um, her, her playing is not so good because she's been in school, because she's graduated now, she's not playing so much. Um, and they sort of turn on her a little bit. They don't really like her attitude. Jet Magazine, <clears throat> in 1953, one of the most prominent black magazines dubs her the biggest flop. Uh, and then the rest of the press sort of crowds around. She's got a bad attitude. She's not appreciative. So that takes a while to correct, but it does. By the time she starts winning, uh, by the time 1956, she wins her first Grand Slam, they're back on board. There would be more struggles in later years. Um, in 1957, she it's her year. She wins Wimbledon. She wins the U.S. National Championship, as it's called. But the press is still having a struggle with her because after she wins Wimbledon, she heads to a tournament in Chicago where she is brutally stopped at, um, at Oak Park outside of downtown Chicago. She cannot go to a hotel. This is Althea Gibson, who just won Wimbledon. She can't stay there. She can't have lunch at the hotel where she's booked it. She has to go to a hotel 12 miles away. A reporter for Time Magazine had heard about this and writes about it. But Althea would not say boo. Would she open her mouth and say, you know, God damn it, nothing. She knew that if she started complaining that it was going to create a whole other chapter of complications for her, and she didn't want to do it. Althea was very single focused for better or worse. And the black community, the black press did not like it. Yeah, reading about the black press going back and forth and how personal some of the articles got, it, it reminded me of Twitter <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that that was a bad episode for sure. Let's talk about the white press. I mean, some of the headlines were are astonishing to read. You know, you know they were of the time. She was called a negress, the colored one. But there was one Life magazine piece titled "The New Tennis Threat." Right. So, what was the tone of that piece, given that provocative title? If I'm recalling correctly, this is 1950, right before yes. um, the U.S. Open. And Ginger Rogers, sorry, the U.S. National Championship, as it was called then, uh, Ginger Rogers was going to be appearing there also. She wasn't a fabulous tennis player, Ginger Rogers, but she was a great star. She was a wonderful dancer. But they kind of paired the two of them off because Althea and Ginger Rogers were going to show up at the West Side Tennis Club. So the magazine ran uh, this article with the two of them back to back on either side of <laughs> Of the magazine, mm. when you open it up, Ginger's on the right side, dressed in black. Althea's on the left side, dressed in white. Um, they were really drawing a a contrast between these two people. Althea was the threat to the white sport, barging into the West Side, the elite tennis club. What was going to happen? They were kind of loving it and hating it all at once, as I saw it. Yeah, the word threat is so loaded, right? In so many ways, right. Althea didn't seem to understand the power of the press. Her friends and advisors would suggest she should be more friendly, and we would call it media savvy today. If you could share with the audience, what was something she said that really caused her trouble, and maybe trouble that could have been avoided if she just were media savvy? 
things might have gone a little yeah, more she smoothly. Would just, tell to just say, go away. I, I don't, I'm not <laughs> going to talk to you now. Buzz off. And Rosemary Darbin, who I mentioned early on, mm-hmm. uh, one of her closest friends in the ATA circuit, would say, Althea, you can't do that. You've got to be nice to them. And she'd be like, ah, I don't want to. I don't care. And, you know, that kind of went on until she matured, was probably in, I don't know, her late 20s, early 30s. She just told him to F off, basically. My guest is Sally Jacobs. We are discussing her book, Althea, The Life of Tennis Champion, Althea Gibson. It is our choice for full bio. Since its inception, no one black person had played at Wimbledon until June 26, 1951. When did Althea Gibson begin to attempt to play at Wimbledon? What would she need to do to play at Wimbledon that was difficult for her to get there? There had been one other person of color, a Jamaican, who mm-hmm. played in the 20s. She was the first uh, black woman, black person to play there. You know, I was kind of uh, overwhelmed by the press coverage of her when she gets there. The British papers were just shrieking at this. I, there was one story when they had about six different words for the color of her skin. She was black. She was colored. She was nigger. She was this. And it went over and over and over. Like, that's all you knew was that she was black, 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 colored, colored, colored. Didn't matter that she played tennis. Mm. Of course, the story was about Wimbledon, <laughs> um, you know, about the tennis tournament. But the press coverage was just astonishing. Even more so over the top than it was the United States. Help me understand, was there a any sort of written rule or official rule that a black person could not play at Wimbledon? No, it just said it had never happened before. So in 1951, objectively, was Althea Gibson ready for Wimbledon to play? She doesn't, she doesn't win, we should say, even the first time. Uh, right. Was she ready to play physically, mentally? Oh, well, remember, she wins the first round, so it's not nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, she wasn't really ready. Um, she's defeated by Be- Beverly Baker, the famous um, <laughs> ambidextrous tennis player who would flip her racket from right to left, right hand to left hand, never hit a backhand, always forehands from you know different sides of her body, a very good player. You know, Althea wasn't really ready for it yet. Again, the the traits mm-hmm. that I've described, like her erraticism, her foot faults, her nervousness. You know, there was a lot of yelling there, N-word this. Um, you know, people were not kind to her. It was overwhelming. Even if her play had been better and more controlled, um, it still would have been an overwhelming experience. She does hit a milestone, becoming the first African-American player to win a Grand Slam when she took the French Open playing on red clay, and the way you describe the audience, it's, could you describe the crowd she faced? Well, (laughs) they were even more emotional, you know, more overwrought. They were legendary for that, for being emotional, Mm name-calling, all of it. Um, Yeah, it was a very complicated match for her. She's playing with, uh, against Angela Buxton. I mentioned her early on as the Mm -hmm. British woman who was a very close friend. The two of them are competing. Uh, and a sort of odd thing happened, which was that Althea's bra strap snaps during the match. Um, you know, normally that player would go into the locker room, fix the problem, come back. You know, Angela was her friend. Angela went with her. The crowd went crazy. Like, what's going on here? Why are these two players disappearing? You know, Angela could have stood her own, mm-hmm. stayed out there, 
called the game, you know, said she didn't want to help her kind of thing. But they go on, they continue to play, and Althea recovers and wins. Um, but it was really a kind of a wild scene of emotion and name-calling. Um, but it also marked Althea's first Grand Slam victory. In 1957, she plays at Wimbledon. She triumphs at Wimbledon. Was it an exciting final match? It was probably one of the worst matches in tennis history, as some <laughs> tennis writers said. Uh, she played Darlene Hard, otherwise known as the California Waitress, as the press called her, not so pleasantly. They, they didn't mean to be. It just was kind of what her background was. She was a very pleasant uh, person, a very good player. They had played many times together. But it was a, um, a dull match. It was not a very high-profile tennis. There were even a couple, there's a videotape of that uh, match. And there's even a couple times when Darlene just watches the ball sail by and sort of starts to clap her hands. So you get the drift. I think she was kind of overwhelmed by Althea. Althea was overwhelmed herself a little bit. But it really wasn't a great match. Is this the match where Althea Gibson has presented her award by yes. the Queen? Yes, yes. Wow. 1957, right. The queen comes down and is standing under a little roof. She's got the trophy and both the players, Darlene and Althea, have been trained uh, because people thought this moment was going to happen, how they had to curtsy, you know, not make eye contact right away, the whole procedure. And the, the queen, uh, Althea says something like, um, oh, I hope it wasn't too hot for you up there. And she says, no, no, at least I had it. The queen says, no, no, I had a roof overhead. I hope it wasn't too hot for you. So that was kind of the end of that. Racism was the main reason that Althea Gibson was kept out of playing Forest Hills, which would now we describe as the U.S. Open. Did the U.S. LTA, did the officials, was it that blatant? Was it that clear? You can't play here because you're black? No. Like many acts of overt racism in those years, nobody would call it what it was. What they would say was, oh, she can't play here until she wins some lesser tournaments. She needs to go rack up some wins elsewhere to win, you know, to, to earn the right to play here. Was that true? Not really. No. Reggie Weir played all over the place. Um, they wanted her to do that. They wanted to require her to do that um, so that she, they could keep her out, basically. There were some minutes of a meeting of the USLTA where they, they really have the blunt discussion um, where they're saying, you know, Chinese people want to play just on the basis that they're Chinese people and they don't allow them in. So it was kind of a subterfuge to keep her out, saying she didn't have enough experience. But that wasn't true. Enter superstar Alice Marble, number one in the world during her career. She comes out and she is a super ally. Uh, she calls for Althea being allowed to play. Sally, would you read part of the letter? Alice Marble was one of the best women players, as we discussed. She was number one in 39. And she uh, was a real believer in tennis and women being able to play whatever color they were. And so she decided that she was going to take a stand on this hypocrisy of the USLTA. And she wrote uh, a letter to what was a prominent tennis magazine, American Lawn Tennis, in 1950. And here's what she says. 
I think it's time we faced a few facts. If tennis is a game for ladies and gentlemen, it's also time we acted a little more like gentle people and less like sanctimonious hypocrites. If there's anything left in the name of sportsmanship, it's more than time to display what it means to us. If Althea Gibson represents a challenge for the present crop of women players, it's only fair that they should meet the challenge on the courts where tennis is played. The entrance of Negroes into national tennis is, an, is as inevitable as it has proven to be in baseball, in football, or in boxing. There is no denying so much talent. The committee at Forest Hills has the power to stifle the efforts of one Althea Gibson, who may or may not be the stuff of which champions are made, but eventually she will be succeeded by others of her race who have equal or superior ability. They will knock at the door as she has done. What was the impact of that letter? Stupendous. It got them. They really couldn't say no to this. Alice goes on in her way and points out that uh, sometimes in the summer she gets um, a dark skin from the sun. Another player gets freckles. Are they blocked from playing in the USLTA? Of course not. So what's the difference? The USLTA doesn't do anything right away, but it got people talking. Their number had been called. Within, I think it's about three or four weeks, um, Althea is allowed in to play in the U.S. National Championship. And the New York Times headline, as I recall, is something like, Negro girl allowed to play in tournament. No name, just Negro girl. She had, we've discussed the black power brokers that she's had behind her. But over the course of reading your book, it became clear that she had women tennis players who were her allies, who rallied to help her. There was a well-known Jewish player who became her really good friend, having been excluded herself. Um, how were they able to exert power so that Althea would get a fair shot? And honestly, from your, from your research, why were they interested in helping a competitor? Well, I'm not sure that they altogether were, to be honest with you. <laughs> there were some, yes. Mm -hmm. um, Alice Marble was one of them. Beverly Baker was a supporter. Um, there were a few that supported Althea, but to be honest with you, a lot of them didn't. Mm -hmm. Althea endured a lot of um, bad treatment, cold shoulders. Uh, you know, when they traveled, these women on the road, which they often did, a lot of them had um, a partner, you know, someone who they probably played doubles with or who was their best friend. They would get hotel rooms together. Not Althea. There was a list uh, of people in the locker room, and there'd be kind of jokes or little um, nicknames everybody had. Not Althea. She was not part of the crowd. And that's where Angela comes in. Angela Buxton, the British woman that you mentioned, who had endured a lot of... Um, really bad discrimination in South Africa as a Jewish woman. She knew what it was like. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I think in 1948 or 9, I think it is, she as a young woman had heard about Althea and goes to watch her and is astonished by how she plays and kind of gets her eyes set on her. They meet later on in India um, when Althea is overseas, and they became really good friends, and they were the two that were the buddies mm -hmm. on the road. Now, the group didn't particularly like them. <laughs> they didn't really like Angela mm. either. They thought she was too full of herself, too this, too that. So really, Angela and Althea were kind of off on their own. It wasn't until much later, uh, really when Althea started playing golf, that she became part of the girls' inner circle. Once Althea can play at Forest Hills, there's this argument that sort of bubbles up 
Was she a trailblazer or was she being used as a pawn in some way? What was the argument for each side? Well, the argument was by the black community, right? Althea's this great player. She's broken through the barrier. But a lot of black male, actually, many men uh, in the black press were not so happy about it because what it meant was Althea's going to get to go. But what about everybody else? Was this really for black people or was it just for Althea? And that was a kind of a reasonable question because she really was, um, you know, someone who had been supported and championed um, and other black players. Yes, there were a couple here and there, but by and large, uh, they still uh, were not advancing in the sport. Now, this is part of the, the whole race picture in America. It wasn't just because they weren't being let in, but they didn't get the opportunities that they needed to be able to play. They weren't getting the training. They couldn't afford to play the sport. They couldn't afford, you know, the whole thing. They couldn't travel. It, it was a larger issue than what was just Althea. Even after winning Wimbledon twice and the U.S. Open twice, Althea was never rich. She was she was often broke sometimes because of bad business decisions, mostly because women didn't get paid well. How did her financial situation impact her career choices and then her choices in tennis? Uh, it, it impacted her tennis career in the sense that she stopped it early, you know, mm-hmm. in 1958, um, which was for, you know, she she had won again Wimbledon in the U.S. Open. She announces that she's leaving to people's astonishment. You know, Althea could have played on, definitely. But there was no money in tennis. You know, it's hard to imagine today with these enormous purses, millions of dollars. The Williams sisters are enormously wealthy. There was no money. Not only was there no money, you got punished if you did make a little money. Now, players made it under the table and on the side. But if you got caught making a little money, um, there was a big problem. You'd get booted out. So by 1958, she decides that she is going to go do something else. And she embarks on a series of, you know, mixed enterprises, a handful of which are modestly successful, but none of them really is. And she ends up later in life in, in chronic poverty. I want to spend the last part of our conversation talking about Althea the person, Althea's role in history, how Althea felt about her role in history. Uh, There was one period in her life when the U.S. government decides to send athletes around the world as ambassadors of goodwill to show the ability to prosper in the states. The Harlem Globetrotters, Jesse Owens. It was a a global ambassador position. Uh, Why would Althea accept this position? Because she was smart. <laughs> um, that's a simplistic answer. But the truth was Althea realized that this was going to give her an opportunity. She didn't know how great an opportunity, but she saw, I think, that this could help her. You know, she was sort of not doing so well at this point. It's 1955. She's still in a bit of a slump. What happens is that Emmett Till, tragically, is murdered. Uh, and the Russian government takes advantage of um, all the racism deep in American culture. They, they start making fun of America, criticizing them. And the State Department snaps too, as they had already, by sending blacks overseas. Uh, and they, uh, within, I think it's, gosh, a couple weeks after Emmett Till's death, they go to Althea and they say, how would you like to go on a goodwill tour overseas? Okay, you could say she's being used, exploited. Yes, she was a little bit. But Althea was smart, too. If she was going to get ahead and succeed, then she was going to go on that trip. She goes with three other white people. 
uh, one of whom, Hamilton Richardson, uh, is a great guy, a great player, and he really helps her, really helps her with her game. All three of them do, the other white players. And they become a team, the foursome. They do various exhibits all over India, Ceylon, Pakistan, and Althea is the hero of the group because she is the same color as other people that are watching. And they love talking to her. She wins almost every, every all but two, 16 out of 18 tournaments. It just was a deal breaker for her. Was she wrong to do it? You know, this is a question that kind of plagues Althea's position on race, I think. Was she right to be as self-absorbed, as self-focused, or was she smart? Because Althea broke the barrier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Could she have done it if she didn't focus on herself? I, I want to tell you one little thing I stumbled upon in my research that I thought really summed it up, you know, as you try to understand Althea's position, because she didn't speak out on the black cause, and she took a lot of heat for it. Uh, but she did break the barrier. On December 1st, 1955, two things happen on the same day. Rosa Parks sits down on the bus, the seat in the bus for blacks only, and refuses uh, to get off to make way for a white citizen. Uh, and thus we begin the year-long, you know, boycott of the buses there. On the same day, I did the math, Althea sits down on a plane in Rangoon heading out on the Goodwill journey. Goodwill tour, sorry. You know, she is not a champion for the black cause. She never really speaks out about it. Looking at those two people, you could say, you know, Althea was kind of the timid, self-absorbed one. Rosa was the hero, the heroine. I don't really think that's true. Althea did what Althea could do. She fought it with every fiber of her being, and she encountered racism at every step of the way, on the court, in the locker room, you name it. And she couldn't do both things. She couldn't be a race champion and a tennis champion. And I began to appreciate that as I learned more and more about her. I don't think if she'd been a race champion, she could have broken the barrier. Why so, not? Because it would have taken too much energy. It would have taken too much harassment. I don't think psychologically Althea, an abuse victim as a child, you know, who'd struggled so much against so many odds, could have done both. She said, I am not a racially conscious person. I don't want to be. I see myself as just an individual. I can't help or change my color in any way. So why should I make a big deal out of it? I'm a tennis player, not a Negro tennis player. I have never set up set myself up as a champion of the Negro race. This is from her autobiography, I Always Wanted to Be Somebody. Why is that a quote that's important for listeners to consider? Because I think it helps you understand why Althea did what she did and why she didn't do what she didn't. What I was trying to explain earlier mm -hmm. that Althea did the best that she could do. For her, being a champion of the black race was being the best tennis player she could because that way she would break the barrier. She would be a symbol. She would be someone who could be the best. And if that's not doing something for the black race, I don't know what is. It wasn't what everybody was clamoring for, but Althea, as usual, had to do it her own way. And so she did. Ebony wrote that no Negro athlete could outrun all the bad news coming from the United States. Some people were much crueler and called her behavior Uncle Tomish. Yeah. Um, what did she come home to in the black press? Well, again, they, they felt like she was being used and that they weren't, she wasn't fighting the good fight, which, again, mm -hmm. <laughs> kind of depends on how you look at it. No, she wasn't on a day-by-day -day basis. 
But the black press will turn again. You know, she mm -hmm. becomes their heroine again when she starts winning in 57. That's Althea's year. She wins everything. You know, here is a black athlete who is number one in the world. Um, and the black press, uh, you know, surrounds her. Now, I, I want to point out one other thing of the many, many incidents of, of, of racism. This is another one that always just really moves me. In 1958, Althea Gibson is the number one women's tennis player in the world. She's won everything. And she's going to go down to Miami to play in something called the Goodwill, um, Good Neighbor Tournament. It was one of the first tournaments she played in um, as a black player in 51. 1958, she's driving down the interstate, feeling pretty darn good about things. She's got a lot of friends playing in the tournament. She takes a left to go over the bridge into Miami. And there's a toll gate there. And as she's about to you know, go through the gate, the guard comes out, puts his hand up and says, no, you can't come in here. No black people can come in here. There's been a long history of blacks, black people not being allowed onto the beach there without permits. And she's astonished. She tells him who she is. I'm Althea Gibson. I'm, you know, it's XYZ. Doesn't believe a word of it, even when she shows her license. At the end of this terrible encounter, uh, she has to call the tournament directors to tell the, uh, the gatekeeper to let her in, that she's playing in the tournament. So at the end of the day, Althea Gibson is another black girl who can't come through the gate. <laughs> yes, she gets in, but you know, she has to work hard to be able to do it. And it so upset her, it enraged her, that by the time she gets on the court, I talked to a number of other women who played that tournament, she just is a wreck. She loses the first match, she's so upset by it, and it doesn't really leave her for a while. She realizes everybody's talking about it, and it's humiliating to her. We're discussing the book, Althea, The Life of Tennis Champion Althea Gibson. My guest is Sally Jacobs. It's our choice for full bio. Althea Gibson takes up competitive golf and once again breaks the color barrier and becomes the first black golfer in the Ladies Professional Golf Association. Why golf? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, golf because she could. Golf because more black people were playing in golf. Um, a number of athletes um, had started to play, so it seemed like a somewhat welcoming community to her, you know, not standing the larger hostility of the white community, black people were beginning to play the sport. So she took a stand. She decided to play. She was not a, a champion in the way she was in tennis. From your research and from reading her files, was this a happy time in her life, this time when she was a golfer? I would say it was a mixed time. Althea mm -hmm. had a job. Um, she was a community representative for something called Tip Top Bread. So she had a bit of an income, not a lot, but enough. Um, you could make money in golf. Althea never was great at golf. She did okay. It took a while. I think she made the most of something like, I don't know, it was like $15,000 in one year. But she was part of the group. Um, the white female players really embraced her. Um, but she felt very supported there, I think. She drove in a long line of cars. Each car had the female golf player. And so in that respect, I think she felt a community support that she'd never had. That her performance was not better, I think, was was a real disappointment for her. She only played uh, till I think it was the mid-70s, 76, 77, I think she stopped. In a different world, Althea Gibson might have been a singer. She loved music so much. She was at the Apollo as a kid. She, I think, played second place, you write, and she was the Apollo. Uh, exactly. Was she ever, I know she made a couple records, was she ever really serious about being a singer? 
Oh, she was serious. Yeah. She had a singing coach for two years um, who helped her a lot, but she was not a really great singer. He, she releases an album album called Althea Gibson Sings by Dot Records in 58. Um, and it just, it really didn't sell. So that was kind of the end of that. She sang on and off, but never in any um, official way, in any um, professional way. Let's hear a little bit of Althea Gibson singing. I can't give you anything but love, baby That's the only thing I've plenty of, baby Dream a while, scheme a while We're sure to find happiness And I guess all those things you've always pined for, gee I like to see you looking swell, baby. Diamond bracelets, Woolworth doesn't sell, baby. Till that lucky day, you know darn well, baby. I can't give you anything but love. Gibson married twice, divorced twice, no children. Was family life, sort of traditional family life, ever a priority for her? Uh, yes, yes. I think, well, when you say family life, she didn't have children. She learned um, early on that she couldn't have children. I don't know the reason why. But in 1984, the San Francisco Chronicle did a story reporting on this that she had learned early on. So I think that affected her view of marriage and family if she wasn't going to have children. Mm-hmm. Will Darbin uh, was a great guy um, who adored her and courted her for years. They were really good friends. The joke in the family was that uh, he was the feminine one, she was the masculine one, whatever. It worked. Um, they do get divorced, but even after they get divorced, they come back in later years. They get together and go to their favorite sandwich shop and watch sports together. It was a really a real relationship. Um so in that sense, uh, I think it was very important to her. She loved Will Darwin. She used to drive, um, gosh, in her last year, she would drive back to their home where Will Darwin had grown up with Rosemary and where Althea lived for a while in Montclair, mm-hmm. New Jersey. And she would sit in her car, parked outside with the engine off, big hat on her head. And a guy inside who I talked to would come out and say, Miss Gibson, do you want to come inside? She said, oh, no, those days are over. I'm just remembering the good times. So, you know, this was a very important thing to her. Yeah, I was reading the book, and reading the book, being WNYC, there's a lot of New York, there's a lot of Montclair, there's a lot of the oranges in the book. Um, And later in her life, for a time, she had a leadership position that she took in New Jersey. Would you share what she did when she worked in New Jersey? Yeah, uh, she had a string of positions. 
Uh, none of which lasted too, too long. Um, she was a, a director of the Valley View Racquet Club for a while. Uh, her biggest job really was New Jersey State Athletic Commissioner, first female to get that job. Uh, she got it in 1976 because the governor uh, was someone she played tennis with. Uh, and they were very good friends, but she didn't really like it. She felt she didn't have enough authority to do what she wanted to do. So she stepped down uh, the following year in 77. She ran for state Senate, um, a very credible run, but didn't win. Uh, and then she was uh, on the Governor's Council for Physical Fitness for a number of years in the 80s. So she had a bit of a, a you know, a, a face in the community mm -hmm. there. She was in the media quite a bit, but slowly kind of began to fade as years went on. Like many older black pioneers who didn't make a lot of money and didn't get these huge endorsement deals like now, she was financially strapped in her old age, so much so that fundraisers were held to help pay for her medical care, and there may have been some malfeasance on part of her caretakers. Um, it's not a happy way to remember her. So I do want to ask you, how would you want her to be remembered? Just to point out one thing about that, um, it was Angela Buxton who really, Althea calls up Angela and says, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to go away. And Angela says, oh, where are you going to go? And she says, well, I'm going to kill myself. I'm done. And Angela rockets into action, as is her habit, and starts to raise money and does, after a couple of hiccups, does raise a little over a million dollars. So Althea did have some money in her final years, not a lot, but enough. Um, I think Althea should be remembered as uh, an athletic champion who broke the color barrier, not just one, but two sports, and never to this day has really gotten the recognition that she deserves. She was a model for Arthur Ashe in a big way, for the Williams sisters. Um, Serena wrote a paper about Althea when she was in high school, uh, and yet many, many people don't know who she is. Uh, I don't know if you saw the movie King Richard about the Williams sisters. There is a photograph of Althea Gibson on the refrigerator during one of the times when Richard's having a fight with his wife. Just a little picture, a little black and white picture of Althea. No comment, no nothing. I saw it and I thought, oh my gosh, it must be Serena who put that photo up there. Or maybe it was Venus or Richard who admired her. So I decided I was going to find out. Long story short, I spent weeks trying to find out who put that photo on the refrigerator. I called this person, that person, the Williams sisters uh, agents. I finally get the set designer for the uh, studio that made the film. And I said to her, oh, so that film, that picture of Althea, how did that end up getting up there? She said, well, you know, I put it up there and I had no idea who it was. It was the only black woman in tennis that I could find. So I figured that the Williams sisters knew her. It was Althea. The name of the book is Althea, The Life of Tennis Champion Althea Gibson. My guest has been Sally Jacobs. Sally, thank you for giving us so much time. Sure. Thank you so much. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>